This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode nine, and we're recording on Wednesday, July 3rd. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. We missed you. Thank you. It's good to be back, but I can't say I thought about you that much while I was, you know, lolling about on the beach. I can't blame you. (laughs) I mean, I am glad that I was not the one gone because Chuck was awesome last week. Chuck was awesome. I I listened to episode eight and, you know, wanted to shout out and raise my hand and like, ooh, 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 but I haven't thought about that too. (laughs) He was great because if it was, if I was out and you were with him, I might have been replaced. I might have been out. I mean, you let the two gingers take over the it's show, tough, and you man. just so don't I, I know. got to watch out for that. We got to find someone slow-witted to replace me when I'm on vacation. <laughs> All right, note to self. Note to self. So, okay, let's get through. We're, we're recording early this week because we got the um, patriotism holiday, and nothing else is going to happen nothing in publishing. Happen. So, yeah, maybe you can. Maybe we'll get this one so you can listen to it on the weekend, dear reader. So we got follow-up from last week. Just one bit, but it's awesome. Yeah, follow-up from what, episode seven, Oh, right? I'm sorry, right. Two episodes ago, we talked about um, Ambro- Ambrose Bierce, whose birthday we commemorated two weeks ago, who um, went down and when he was 71 years old and retraced his old Civil War battle- battlefields and wandered down through Ohio into the Appalachians and down through New Orleans into Mexico and disappeared and you know, there, it's a great literary mystery, whatever happened to Ambrose Bierce. And you and I were suggesting, boy, wouldn't that make a great novel? Right. We were wishing that there was an Ambrose Bierce novel that we could read. And it turns out that there is. There is. Thank you to Brian Scanlon, who left us a comment on the post saying, well, uh, Carlos Fuentes wrote that. And it's called The Old Gringo. The Old Gringo. 208 I mean, pages. I want The Old Gringo on my bookshelf. I'm just reading because. this. I'm going to read this. I'm, it may not be soon. But this is just this is just up my alley. So great! It sounds great. Um, thank you, Brian. Thank Stanley. you, Brian, so much. That's we love when we get those kinds of uh, notes to get back. Because, Man, and it's so satisfying when you wish for a book and then it turns out that the book is real. D- now, does that mean we have great taste or predictable taste? <laughs> <laughs> Some sort of literary clairvoyance. Yeah, like I guess we've read enough books that we're like we can sort of sniff out a. Oh, there's a book there. Yeah, I think there's a book there. You know what? I actually, I think it's probably all the time that we spend with our contributors when they just talk about ideas or they send random tweets and we're both like, that's a book riot post. You should write that right now. That's a Um, really good point. That is something I'm interested in. Make that happen. mm -hmm. Um, In this case, it was retroactively happening before we even knew we wanted it. Right. We didn't even, and we don't even have to wait for it. We didn't have to wait. We wouldn't, someone's like, I'm going to write that book. We'd be like, yes, and have to wait six years for it to come out. Um, Instant literary gratification is the best literary gratification. So if you were interested in a fictional retelling of what happened on Ambrose Bierce on his last walk, um, check that out. Carlos Fuentes is the author and it's short. So I think, I think, you know, that's not a, that's not a big, difficult uh, time commitment. Cool. That's so cool. 
So that's our follow-up. Let's do our first sponsor before we get to the big stories. Got a new sponsor this week. All right. Got Fire Knife Dancing by John Enright. It's a new book in a series of Samoan mysteries. The previous one was called Pago Pongo, Pago Pago Tango. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's about a Samoan detective, uh, Apalu Sofua. I'm totally butchering this. This is tough for us, but we're doing the best we can. Uh, So this detective, he sort of straddles his two cultures, his native Samoan culture, but also modern society, um, and, you know, lives sort of in that tension, I guess, between the native and the new. And he's on a routine patrol one night when he comes across a jungle estate and uncovers an inter-island smuggling ring. And this is not just like drugs or jewelry. The smugglers are trafficking humans. Oh, man. I hear it's right. the worst kind of trafficking. Totally. By like mm. several degrees. That's, yeah, it's, it's really bad. Okay. Uh, and because they're bad guys and they're smuggling humans, they're totally, they don't have any problem setting up this detective to take the fall. So that's what they do. They set him up. The detective uh, is accused of murder. And the only thing that he can do is go AWOL and just abandon his family and his job until he can uncover the truth. Okay. So that's what he's doing. He right. I, he's he's AWOL in to clear his name. You know, I like these I like these kind of mysteries where the person investigating it is also being investigated. So it's like that I've got There's to find out before layers. they layer it on me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always it's a it's a Robert Langdon thing, right? Like yes, Robert Langdon. if I don't find out who did it, they're gonna pin it on me. So that's good. Okay. Yeah, good. So you like serial mysteries, you like police p- procedurals, it's probably worth checking out. It's fire knife dancing by John Enright. Thanks for sponsoring. Thank you so much. So check them out, Fire Knife Dancing, John Enright, and uh, support the show. Yeah. All right. So I guess we've got one, I guess the most interesting thing we saw this week was an infographic about the amount of time people in different countries around the world spend reading each week. Yes. Did I explain that right? It is right. It takes the the average amount of time a person in that country spends reading in a given week. I guess it must be poll data. I actually don't know how they came up with this. Right. It must, it's got to be self-report, Yeah. which um, people tend to lie on self-report right. surveys. But so. if everyone's lying, then <laughs> right. at least you, you get ass- relative liars. <laughs> right. You just assume that everyone's lying. To some degree. So, uh, so the most... Well, let's, before we before we give it away, were you surprised? You know, I was a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think if I'd had to guess, like if we had played the game that we played with most bookstores yes. per capita, I would have guessed that the really cold places uh-huh. have the people who read right. the most. Like where it's just cold all the time. Because of frostbite. And you can, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I read a lot because Siberia. Yeah. You know, that like just... You can't ever leave. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do besides curl up year-round with a book in your house? I think right. that's probably what I would have guessed if I had thought about it. And then maybe my second layer would have been about education. Where do I think the people are mm-hmm. the most educated that they can spend a lot and of time? And going on those two premises, you would have been dead wrong. I would really have been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're learning is I'm real bad at Yeah, so the top, let's see, the top five. So the, the countries that have the highest per capita hours of reading in a week. India, 10 hours and 42 minutes. Mm-hmm. Thailand, 9 hours and 24 minutes. China, 8 hours. The Philippines, 7 hours and 36 minutes. And Egypt, 7 hours and 30 minutes. Oh, and the Czech Republic. 
Yeah, I was doing top five. Didn't I cover oh, five? Oh, yeah, Czech sorry. Okay. Is, I was just looking at all the ones in that top yeah, tier. Yeah, they give it in tiers and colors for some reason. I don't quite understand. But uh, Czech Republic is not that far behind Egypt at seven hours and 24 minutes. This just goes to show how much I don't know about the world. Mm-hmm. I just don't. I don't know it. Um, I do know that India has a robust book culture. They have a lot of used bookstores and outdoor book markets. I know that. We get emails from lots of readers yeah, in India, actually. Yeah, send us pictures. A lot of emails from India. And the Philippines, too, actually. We have a lot of Filipino readers. Mm-hmm. Um, we can see that in Facebook demographics and some of the other stuff we have. So I guess based on that, I'm not surprised by those two. I don't know how to draw these things together, to be quite honest with you. I don't, I don't know what thread or what commonality these have. Um, yeah, and the, the infographic sort of made the rounds between a lot of book coverage sites mm-hmm. this week. And that seems to be the thing that everyone is saying is we, we don't really know, like, because they didn't collect any other, or at least they didn't publish any other right. demographic data about these people. We know um, their genders and their ages mm-hmm. are also part of this chart. So you could break that down, but we don't have anything about... Well, and I look you know, at that top tier, I'm like, oh, so it's like Asia and Indochina, right? Mm-hmm. India, Thailand, China, and Philippines. And then, and lo then and behold, you look at the bottom of the list, mm-hmm. and the bottom three are Taiwan, Taiwan, Japan, and Korea. So that's also Asia. So that isn't, you know, that kind of... Right, and the U.S. doesn't hold... The USA is, what, six or seven from the bottom? Yeah, we're not super high up there. With five hours and 42 minutes a week. But as I said in Critical Linking, at least we beat the, beat the Brits, who came in <laughs> a couple slots below us. Um, the average American reads 12 more minutes a week than the Brits do. Um, well, so that's something. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, let's see, right in the middle, that middle tier, Poland, Venezuela, South Africa, Australia, Indonesia, Argentina. You know, I wonder if people, I guess maybe some people pay more attention to this, but I wonder how accurate people can be, even if they're not trying to lie yeah. about this. Like, Well, here's I, a question. How accurate do you think you would be? See, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. It's like, I, I have this little alarm that goes off on my phone every day at nine o'clock that tells me, go read a book. And mm-hmm. I'm supposed to obey it, you know, and right. sit down and read for like half an hour or an hour. But it's so sporadic. And I think most readers lives are like that. Some days you sit down and you get 30 minutes and yeah. maybe on a Saturday I sit down and I get two hours. And there are days or there are weeks where I might go like several days without reading anything. Well, and then I sit I down and like thinking. have a binge and I don't have any, honestly, I have no idea. I could, I track how many pages I read. So I right. could, but not by day. So I could break down like, oh, well, it took me two weeks to read that book. And roughly how many pages per minute I read, mm-hmm. so I can maybe like backdoor it that way. But I don't have any. I try idea. to read an hour a day these days, um, which is less than I have read in the past. But you know, I kind of make it a point of pride and pleasure to try to read an hour a day, even if it's broken up into a couple or even several sessions over a course of a day here and there. Mm-hmm. And so that would only, and I can, you know, I think of myself as a pretty serious reader still, even though I don't read as much, and that only puts me. If I was the average, that's I'm Russia at seven or six in number um, the number seven slot. So, and I guess is it the difference between the U.S. at five forty two and Russia at seven or six is an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. So that's 20 minutes a day, 20 basically. 20 minutes a day more. Yeah, or a little, actually, not 15 minutes a day. So that's not a huge difference. Um, maybe the spread is like... Korea, the one is the one I want to see at the bottom. I'm not surprised by because I've also seen stats about how many times, how much time people in Korea spend online. 
Mm. They have um, the best high-speed broadband in the world. And they have pretty intense work culture yeah. as um, well. Japan maybe is a similar situation. Uh, Taiwan, um, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just spitballing yeah. here a little bit. The, yeah, I want to know the people in India. Where are you getting your 10 hours yeah. a week? Also, and how do you know? Readers or listeners, if, you, if y'all are... Yeah. listening and you do track or you have a really good idea of how much time you spend yeah. reading, I would really love to know how you got I that. I wonder if it correlates to internet number. time or television time, maybe? Maybe. I mean, I think... places with a lot of TVs, I would expect there to yeah. be higher amounts of reading going You know, on. this is a thing where technology might actually help us. Like, yeah. the Kobo readers, and I, maybe some of the other e-readers do, but Kobo is the one that I've seen that um, if you you know, do all of your reading in the Kobo app on your iPad mm-hmm. or on a Kobo reader, you can hit a little stats thing and it will tell you like your average pages per day, pages per minute, the times of day that you read the most. Right. Um, and I was, our, my friend, Jen, who is a Book Riot contributor as well, was showing me hers recently. And she said that it was really interesting because she thought that she did a lot of her reading in the morning over coffee. Like th- mm. that's her thing. She gets up, she has coffee, she reads a little bit as she's getting her day started. But her Kobo stats actually reveal that she does most of her reading between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. Well, I'm like, not surprised by that. And I'll tell you why. Because I think if you can steal 20 minutes in the morning, that feels like you really, you got some reading in. But you can just rip off huge chunks at night, right? Right, right. But it's it's certainly but, interesting that like well, the, that she didn't there's know. that right. right that there's data for someone who's you know she works in a bookstore for someone whose job it is to read and to think about books um, that she was off. So I wonder, yeah. well, you know, that's one case study. But I think I'd be off now. Maybe I'll try to track how much time I spend. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that maybe we'll try to make that our uh, goal for next week to see how much. Uh, time we actually spent reading. So that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Anything else on this? There's some other stats about what they read. Um, so they also, they, also people self-reported um, about the different kinds of things that they read. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, the infographic we had broke down Russians, which yeah. I thought was just arbitrary and <laughs> interesting that, that right. that's the one they, they pulled. So the most commonly read genre in Russia. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Fantasy. What, what, what would you have guessed? Chekhov. Like, I, I, I was <laughs> guessing classics, which actually is like the second, right? Yeah. So 32% of readers in Russia report reading fantasy and 30% report reading Russian classics. Um, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. I guess love stories is romance novels. Yeah, it says I love stories so. on the graphic, right, not that's romance. That's least cause... read Right, and um, romance, you know, is huge right. here. And yeah. there's no, well, there's detective stories, but not thriller mystery. So I would guess that would be mystery thriller. Yeah. Um, they read a lot of historical novels. Um, they read a lot of foreign classics, 24% of Russian readers. Anyway, I just thought mm-hmm. that was that It was is really interesting. Only 1% of Russian men report reading love stories. But a lot of them are lying. I guess apparently sure. so. Uh, they must be. So anyway, we'll put that in the show notes. You can check that out. There's a link to the full study in the post that we'll link to. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do a deep dive on underreported around the world reading (laughs) statistics, surely to be wrong. I mean, all we know for sure is that this can't possibly be accurate, but it might be representative if that that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Like it might be proportionally correct, but the actual minutes, I would put zero dollars in a wager with someone (laughs) as being uh, accurate. Um, okay. So that's that. 
What's That's next? That's that one. Uh, you know, we teased Bad Job Old Dudes segment a couple of weeks ago. A couple ago. weeks ago. We saved this one for you. And we didn't quite get to it. And we've been pretty happy here on the Book Riot podcast lately. So maybe there's just, you know, we need to have a moment. Yeah, there's uh, two of these. Two Bad Job Old Dudes. Two Bad Job Old Dudes. You know, there's just... There's a lot of discussion, and rightfully so, about sexism in publishing and in literature um, and in book reviewing, sort of in all the things that surround the art of writing and how that art gets presented to the public and interpreted by cultural figures. And uh, Jonathan Franzen, <laughs> yay, yeah, Jonathan yay, Franzen. Yay, France. <laughs> so uh, here's what I think is interesting about this. Jonathan Franzen wrote this. I don't think you can even call it a letter to the editor. It's like three sentences. Uh, that appeared in the New York Times opinion pages two on it's June eleventh. Okay, yeah. it's two sentences. Um, he's responding to a column that Frank Bruni wrote about sexism in the world of books, and what Mr. Franzen has to say is there may still be gender imbalances in the world of books, but very strong numbers of women are writing, editing, publishing, and reviewing novels. The world most glaringly dominated by male sexism is one that Mr. Bruni neglects to mention: New York City theater. Period. That's that's it. And then the bio, like just because I need to roll my eyes at Jonathan Franzen a little bit more. The bio that appears beneath his byline where it just says Jonathan this Franzen. This is too good. Jonathan Franzen, New York, June 11th, 2013. This is the place where normally it would say, you know, like Jeff O'Neill is the editor of bookriot.com. It just says the writer is the novelist. He cannot like, have supplied that himself. Everybody is supposed to know that there's a novelist named Jonathan Franzen. So, I mean, I have. I think the I, Times had to. I, even Jay Franz couldn't have done that. I mean, he wrote this. So let's like let's talk about this. Jonathan Franzen arguably has been a beneficiary of slanted coverage of books. <laughs> um, right. With respect well, to women. Like there. Let's go back to the beginning, which is a very good place to start. Right. Um, Can we sing and begin? I know. <laughs> Do re mi. So, I guess. What there still there may still be gender imbalances. So I'm a close reader. I'm an academic in English by trade, so I look at word choice very closely. And something about that strikes me as being weird. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't really believe that there is gender imbalance, or at the very least, he's deprecating it in favor of highlighting it someplace that's worse. the 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 tone this reminds me of is like. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of like getting hot under the collar about a social issue and then someone's like, well, it's worse than Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I, the big issue for me here is fighting about who is more oppressed. <laughs> right, that, I guess that's it. <laughs> is, because is, it's not is counterproductive. It's dismissive of one particular problem by saying right. the other one is worse, right? Right. And and I don't know uh, if there is sexism in New York City theater. I don't I know either. I am willing to inter- I well, believe since there is that there most is. places, I think we right. just assume yeah. that there- <laughs> I'm willing to believe that there is uh I have no I have no idea if it's any quote unquote worse or more severe than right. sexism in publishing, but where it where these things land on the scale of like who is the most discriminated against or the most mistreated, like that's that battle is distracting from the overall battle, right. which is supposed to be about 
celebrating work that is created by women equally in the ways that we celebrate work of equal quality that's created. Well, let's try this. Let's try this experiment real quick. Sometimes I do this with my students, especially about something that they vehemently disagree with. And I think both of us have our danders up about this. (laughs) My dander is so up. My dander's like touching the ceiling right now. Let's, let's, what's the most generous reading of this letter? Do you see what I'm saying? What, what, let's say that he's not being insufferable here. Um, even if we think he is, what, what, what generous take could we put on this letter? Like, why is he, uh, why is he doing, let's assume he's doing this with good intentions. Okay. What so, do you think is the, the generous way of looking at this? Because he is a, he is a privileged white old dude okay. in a position of cultural authority. And right. perhaps he thinks that he can draw more attention to this issue, get more people to pay note, like to pay attention to the fact that this sexism exists, um, than someone else who might point out the same thing. So at the he might be saying, we should also be paying attention to this place that no one is talking about. Right. That's and, the most generous reading. Of, and he, right? so he might be recognizing that he can draw more attention to this than yeah. potentially someone else could. It, it does feel a little bit like, and maybe he, maybe. It, just him writing a letter at all that says anything like this because of who he is and he's at the center of a lot of these debates, mm-hmm. it feels like he's trying to deflect criticism of one well, area onto another area. The dog has her dander up too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's just like He's like saying, well, it's not so bad over here in this place that I get hammered on or like mm-hmm. doesn't look good for me and my peers. Let's look over here. Um, I, I think it's really... This is really hairy, Jonathan Franzen. Yeah. It's, and it, there are a lot of pieces to it. I think you're right. He might be def- trying to deflect from publishing in general by focusing on mm-hmm. the sexism exi- that exists in theater. But also, I do think that I think that you, you it could be argued, and I actually personally would argue that Jonathan Franzen has benefited from the sexism and the gender imbalance in the coverage of books. There, that there was a point when Freedom came out that he had two features in the New York Times Book Review um, at a time that some really interesting fiction by women wasn't covered at all. Um, it's very uncommon for a novelist to get two features in the New York Times Book Review or to get reviews by two separate reviewers. You know, like just getting one in mm-hmm. the New York Times is a really big deal. Um, Even if you don't really care about what the New York Times reviews, and I don't really care about what they review, but that gender imbalance is present. So he is, he's benefited from this imbalance and the amount of attention that he's gotten from the media. So he has, he is a pony in the race Mm -hmm. to say that that gender imbalance isn't as big of a problem. Like maybe it still exists, but hey, it's not as bad as theater um, because he could still, this is my ungenerous reading of this letter is let me continue to benefit from the imbalances. And even that phrase, gender imbalance, feels a bit like a avoidance, right? Right, yeah. Bruni's column is titled Sexism's Pub- Puzzling Stamina. Yeah. And he doesn't, well, he mentions dominated by male sexism later on. But, and we also know this to be true, that sexism that favors men isn't always generated by men that women also have complicity and somehow these things happen as well like he, sure. he just he just doesn't think about it very complicatedly even in these two brief sentences mm-hmm. um there but very strong numbers of women are well has he has he seen those vita stats about reviewing right, right. the vita stats are, those um, aren't strong numbers man no those and if are you not i i don't i don't care how you look at those numbers if they are accurate i'm going to assume that they are 
mm-hmm. because no one's contested them saying, actually, I recounted the number of reviews in Tin House and you got them all wrong. No one is saying that. Right. And if you're listening and you don't know what the Vita oh, stats are, Vita is an organization that conducts this annual survey, I think, for three or four years in a row now, where they count up. It's the vagina count, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, right. they count up the um, number of features on male writers and female writers in a whole bunch of publications. Um, and they've also started looking at like the representation of women writers in publications that are edited by women versus the representation of women writers in publications that are edited by men. But generally, like the day this comes out is a real sad day on mm-hmm. the internet every year because the news is just never good. And he also sort of shifts the blame onto Frank Bruni by saying that he neglects to mention which makes it sound like he knows about it and just didn't mention it, right? That's you, right. you can only neglect things you know about. If you right, like Bruni, you, can't you neglect wasted, something that you don't know needs tending to. Right, Bruni, you you shouldn't have written about publishing. Yeah. You should have written about theater. Um, and again, playing Jeff's game of trying to think about this from you know to center the critique on like coming from a, a generous way. What let's say he Franzen's right that New York City theater is wicked patriarchal and really tough on women and whatever and what I guess what I would suggest he did instead of doing this would be to write a feature on sexism in New York City theater right Mm -hmm. just keep the publishing stuff out of it right and write like a serious thoughtful essay or expose or whatever he wanted to do right and and not a two sentence toss off like yeah yeah it's it's weird it's a weird choice it is a weird choice you know at the best I can say is that it might have been well-intentioned, but it came off really obtuse-sounding to it me. It did. Sort of a, a tangential thought that I have about this piece in a way that it could be done better and in a useful way. Is mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, there was a memoir by Piper Kerman called Orange is the New Black. Which is a TV show now. Yeah, it's a new Netflix anyway. series. It's supposed to be really good. Uh, I really enjoyed the book, but she was, uh, you know, she's a upper-middle-class white lady with a fancy job uh, who committed some crimes in her 20s but thought that she would never get caught. And then, you know, in her, I think she was in her late 30s, the police show up at her door and it turns out that they found out about the things that she's done and blah, blah, blah. She ends up in prison and she ends up in prison with primarily people from lower socioeconomic groups and different races. And she uses the book to talk about her experience, but also she recognizes her position of privilege relative to the other women that she's in prison with and is able to use her position and her, you know, ability to write this book and her connections to get it published and put it out in the world to really, to draw attention to some of the terrible things that happen to women in prison and some of the inhumane ways mm-hmm. that people are treated. And so I think, you know, I think that there's an opportunity for somebody to do that. Yeah. If Jonathan Franzen really wants to use his position and his voice and the fact that some people will pay attention to him and consider him a cultural authority, then he should do that thing you're talking about. He should write about what happens in New York City theater. He should interview women who have been affected by it. But, like, what? I don't even know why I'm supposed to trust him that he knows this. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure that he's right at some level about there's, there's, there's a lot of sexism in the New York City theater. I mean, I'd have no reason to doubt that, so I'm going to assume that that's true. If you also sort of look at the metadata of the, the the letter to the editor, so it's a piece called Sexism's Puzzling Stamina, and it's written by a dude, mm-hmm. right? And 
the letter to the editor that gets published here is by a dude. Like, I wonder how many other letters to the editor were written in response to this story. Mm-hmm. And that were not written, that were by, not Jonathan Franzen. written by Jonathan Franzen or dudes that did not get published. Um, we can't know, but I'm going to guess there's more than one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also the framing of it is a sign of the problem itself. right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's that's not good. We don't like this. Bad job, old dudes. Bad job, old dudes. That's bad. Ju- bad job, old dudes. Number one. Let's go on to bad job, old dudes. Number ah, two. So this is a piece from Publishing Perspectives from mid-June. It's an interview with a, a man named Michael Kruger, who's retiring after 18 years as, at a publisher um, called Carl Hanser Verlag in Munich, where he's been working since 1968 um, and then was the literary director and has been the publisher since 1995. So this interview is primarily about his experience as a publisher. Um, publishing Perspectives covers a lot of international publishing things, but... There's this part where they ask him, you know, about the, like, the future of literature. And he just flat out says that the problem with books these days is that most readers like bad books. Love, even. Love bad books. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually hit Command F on this, and he mentions the phrase bad books six times. Um, you can... I know there are good, interesting books and bad ones. You can read them on paper or on the screen. I don't care. I only get nervous when people are constantly reading second-class books, when reviewers praise third-rate books, and when booksellers put bad books in their windows. Since book publishing became a mass-market business, the quality level is constantly sinking. But there are still very good books around in every country. The problem is that people can't get them because they are hiding. People thought that with digitization, the good books would be easier to get. But the problem is that most of the readers love bad books. I exclamation no, point. I There's an no exclamation, exclamation point there. I have no explanation for the fact that modern societies have invested tons of money into schools and universities only to find out that horrible books are much more loved than the good ones. Dot, dot, dot. I just can't even. Okay. <laughs> I thought, so let's count how many problems there are. <laughs> Is it the so problem many. is that people can't get good books because they're hiding? Because he says that. That's the problem. Right. That's the old... Then he um, says the problem the is that readers literary, love bad books. Yeah, yeah. So he, he actually contradicts himself. If the problem is that people can't get them, then he would suggest that they actually do want good books. They can't just find them. But well, that so is maybe, not what he says. Maybe it's, it's the old, uh, my literary novel isn't getting any attention because everyone's talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, right? So my right. literary novel got hidden behind Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey was the only thing in the bookstore window. So that's what readers bought. And then that's what readers ended up loving. But that's problematic logic, mister. Yeah, I mean... Also, it's we a bookseller. We can spill all of our blood fighting about which books are good and what does a good book mean and what does a bad book mean, right? We, we've written about this ourselves. We write about this on the site from time to time. I think it's a conversation that's worth constant revisitation, both for yourself and in the larger discourse about what we read and write and care about. But mm-hmm. l- let's try this on for size just for a second. Has, has there ever been a time when the highest level of cultural production has been the most popular thing. Does that make sense? Like usually the most cutting edge, experimental, technically proficient, edgy, 
quality stuff isn't really appreciated until after the fact. If it is. And if it is at all. It goes and, the other way around. Like what happened rarely with is it the mass market most popular thing, right? Right. Right. I mean, we can think of Dickens because that's the exception that proves the rule to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that we w- there's something about what we expect of something that is really good literature, and I'm going to use those with all due disclaimers, right? Right. That, that it's almost that definition forecloses the possibility that they will be popular in their own time. And, you know, we talked about, we've talked about the snob factor yeah. coming in previously, and I I really believe that if if book XYZ, you know, that is considered to be the most cutting edge, like right. highest quality literary thing, if that became the most commercially successful popular book, and that was the book that everyone bought, that everybody sat in the salon talking right. to each other about, that the lit snobs would disown the book. <laughs> because if the common man can love it just as much as I did, if people who don't know books as well as I know them, you know, right. um, love this book and think it's great, then then it must not really be that great. It's that good old, if it's really popular, it can't be high quality. Yeah. And the other top level assumption here is this dude knows what are the good books and what are the bad books. Right. That's the thing that I wish the interviewer had pressed right. here. I know there are good and interesting books and bad ones. You can read them on paper or on the screen. I don't care. Like that second sentence about reading them on paper or on the screen, I don't care. That's like the only thing that I like about this man. Right. Yeah, he doesn't. He that that particular but, false binary doesn't seem to trouble him. But what are the good and interesting ones? What are the bad ones? Tell me the second class book and then the third rate one. Yeah, I would like some examples, please. I mean, he's swirling. Around. I mean, the thing he's lamenting is the books he thinks are the best are not selling enough. I mean, that's this core problem he has, right? Yep. And he's trying to explain that. How can this be the case? And it's re- the, and the, the blaming it on readers, like, that's just the thing I can never get over. It's not the reader's fault if the publisher can't sell the book they think is good. And that selling the book needn't necessarily have any relationship to the number of copies something sells, right? Right. Um. When the bit about booksellers putting bad books in their window, you know, they're like, they're called booksellers. Right. And it's he, their job and he's to stock. blaming them too for. It's their job to stock the books that people want to buy. So I'd I, I like to answer a series of questions. You want to bear, you want to handle, uh, hear these real quick? Please. If he could change one habit, not, not reading preference, but one habit mm. that someone, some piece of the book publishing industry has, what would he change? Not taste, habit. Okay. Do you have any conjecture? So like if, does he really think if, um, you know, Barnes and Noble went out of their way to publish the most interesting German novel in translation that it would make an appreciable difference in the number of copies it sold. Mm. So does he really does he really think it's because they're hiding that they don't know where they are? Uh-huh. Because I'm very skeptical of that claim. Yeah, I'm skeptical of that too. I'm skeptical about the quality level is constantly sinking. I would also like him to select five books he thinks are the best, five books he thinks are second class, and five right. books he thinks reviewers praise that are third rate books, and have them be blind graded by his, the journalists of his choosing mm. to see if he could predict 
accurately what the quote unquote good books are consistently. Cause I am also very skeptical of that claim. Mm-hmm. Do you see where I'm going with this? I do. Because I think his real problem is that the way he thinks the world should work does not line up with the way the world actually works. And what should not be a surprise I mean, to anyone. Welcome right? to life in the world, man. I mean, so let's play our Jonathan Franzen game. Could, what? What? <laughs> My could favorite he, game. What could he have? Could he have said something similar that we wouldn't be so pissed off about? Like, I think he could. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I think it's really possible. I like to assume that most people who work in publishing do it because they love books. Because God knows most of them aren't getting rich. So I think it's really possible that he does love books and has some favorites. And it would I would not be mad at him if he had said, you know, it's frustrating as a publisher when you publish books that you believe are very high quality or that are important culturally or that could really make an impact on the world. And those books don't get the mm-hmm. audience or the readership that you think they deserve. Like, I believe that that's a real problem that publishers face. I think it's a thing they feel and experience, you know, like I, I, we loved this book. We put all this effort into putting it out into the world and it's just not getting the attention that we would like it to get either because we want to make money on it or because we think it's important or both of those things. He could have said that and I would have just nodded yeah. my head and been like, right, good job, dude. Okay. So talk about these books. Like here you're doing an interview with a big publication. Tell them some of the books that you wish people would pay more attention to. Yeah. It's interesting that he seems to care more about good books than people, Mm -hmm. which is, it's not that he's upset that people aren't getting to read these great books. He's upset that they're not selling. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, and it's always a problem when someone indicts an entire ecosystem and it means everyone's wrong but me is, you know, like that's not a good sign. And I think when you have to blame your consumer and your for problems and your retailers mm-hmm. and the re- he he criticizes reviewers he criticizes readers and booksellers do you who's think, left oh publisher well surprisingly right. he is not in the circle of so those to blame. do you think this happens in other artistic industries i'm like, sure it does is there a guy sitting in a music studio somewhere sure, producing sure his avant-garde stuff, giving interviews to publications about how the problem is that people just like bad music? I, I think that's true. I, I think that's probably true. I think it happens in food. I know it happens in food. Oh, yeah. yeah. Why, why do people eat at Chipotle when it's just mm-hmm. mass-produced whatever, you know, or chain or movies, you know, movie snobs are a pretty, you know, yeah, um, that's viral a thing. strain of snob. Um so I'm not surprised. I think, I think when people care about a certain art form in a certain way at a certain level, this kind of thing is the natural outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but bad job, man. That's, bad. that's that's a little lame. That's a little lame. I think. What if he had said something like, "Boy, I really wish that more people got to read these books." And one of my sadnesses is, is that I haven't been able to do that to my mm-hmm. liking. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, I think, that's pretty he, cool to say something like also that. Also, it's like that's more productive if a yeah. publisher if a publisher recognizes that a book they thought was important or could have changed people or culture, or whatever, like whatever the reason yeah. is for wanting it to be out in the world. Um, if they recognize that that book doesn't get the readership that they hoped or wanted it to get, the thing that you're supposed to do then is go back and figure out right. what you did wrong trying to get it out there or what you can do better 
and continue pushing, not Mm -hmm. to blame it on people who didn't know about the book or who chose other things about it. Like this is, it's a missed opportunity to fix it. It's a mixed opportunity, a missed opportunity to do something better by just lamenting the fact that it never happened and blaming readers when he could. Right. Because you know what, you know what kind of critique works is when you say to someone, man, your taste sucks, read better. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, you know what? I've been meaning to read Calvino and I just, I've been sitting here reading these Dan Brown novels and thank you, sir, for throwing it in my face and I'm now going to go and remedy my obviously yeah, terrible taste. Insulting people always makes yeah. them want to join. I mean, club. this isn't, I don't think really a reader facing interview. So maybe that's the wrong thing, but, um, I don't know, you know, and it's, it was a leading question, right? The interview mm-hmm. asked, do you think we're entering an increasingly <laughs> impoverished literary age? Like if I'm the opposing counsel, I'm like objection, leading question. Right. Um, because he's just putting it on a T for him to be bad yeah. job, cranky old dude. Right. You know, and if it's, I don't, I think you're right that it's not a reader facing publication, but is this the narrative that we want publishers to be talking about with each other? Like that's certainly not the conversation that I hope publishers are yeah. having when they have a chance to speak to each other. I hope they're not talking about how it's all readers fault. I would, I really like to think the publishers are trying to solve some of right. those problems and to serve readers interests and to find ways to get us the books that they care about yeah. the most and to make sure we know about them. But man, that guy, this, I just don't want to be in his club. It he is can keep his club. That like how much like his own personal taste seems to be the arbiter of what should and shouldn't be read in his whole worldview. Mm-hmm. Cause I like, I, I try very hard, let me put it this way, not to keep my own personal literary sensibility at the center of how I think about books and reading. I try sure. really hard on the site and when I write stuff, like when I did that well-read thing, that's like, those aren't all the books that I think someone should read. That's trying to be sort of open-minded and seeing the whole board and putting stuff on there. So maybe maybe to get down to a subjectivity where you can say good and bad, you have to intervene with your own taste so maybe there's no other way to do it, but I just any time where it comes down to, I know what the good books are and what the bad books are, and the good books aren't being read. Ergo, the world sucks. Like that mm-hmm. just seems like there's some flaw t- to my mind you know, in thinking about the world in that way. And it's just so boring. So boring. It's so, so boring. boring. There are like <laughs> 975 different ways we could have had this conversation about what's happening in books and what he's excited about that he wishes readers would get a hold of. Or uh, I'm just going to sit here and make sounds about this now. That's the point that we have reached. I'm yeah, let's move on. going to make sounds. Let's talk about new books. New books. Take us new into books. New, new books that may or may not be good or bad, but we... It, we will. You, we have thoughts. You have picked out as highlighting. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, so first big new release, and these are all books that came out this week. They came out on Tuesday. You can pick them up as you're listening to the show. Download and them, them now. wherever right. you like. Yeah. Whatever rings your bells. The first one is called Tampa. It's by Alyssa Nutting uh, from Echo Books. This is one of my personal favorite books of the year, and also I think one of the books we're going to hear the most about. It is about a uh, 24-year-old young woman She lives in Tampa, Florida. She teaches eighth grade and she teaches eighth grade specifically because she has a thing, that kind of thing, for 14-year-old boys. 
Uh, so she is starting school. She's done this before with other 14-year-old boys, and she is preparing to start school. And she walks us through in first-person narration how she selects the young boy in her class that she's going to seduce and then how she seduces him, knowing that it's going to cause him pain and be a disaster. Uh, and then what happens when their lives blow up. Um, it's not easy to read. People are talking about it. People, People are talking, are about, talking it. about it. it. This one, uh, it takes a lot to make me uncomfortable. Um, this one turns your, like the skeeva meter up to like 27. Yeah, it's, it's up there with my dander. <laughs> right. Jeff's dander and, and skeeva meter are off the charts uh, right now. It's so gutsy. Like you're supposed to be skeeved when you read this book. But I thought it was really brave. Uh, and it's interesting and, and it turns. It has a velvet cover. It has, yeah, it has this fuzzy velvet cover. Um, it turns some literary conventions on their head. People are talking about Lolita mm -hmm. a lot with it. Um, but also sort of that idea we have that it would be any 14-year-old boy's dream to sleep with his hot teacher. Uh, and uh, in this story, it is, in fact, not so much a dream. Mm -hmm. um, very interesting, super creepy, disturbing, but I thought really brilliant and well done. It's a debut novel. Tampa, Alyssa Nutting. Woo! Uh, but man, it's a hard one to get through. Okay. Uh, on a really fun note, there's William Shakespeare's Star Wars by Ian Desher, which is out from Quirk Books this week. And it's a retelling of Star Wars in the style of Shakespeare, iambic pentameter and all. It's great. He, cro he crossed the streams. He totally did. The, um, I haven't seen the book. They made a great trailer for this. Trailer that's been is excellent. Running around on the internet, and uh, I mean, I just love it that people have this idea. Like, we should mix Shakespeare and Star Wars. Okay, let's do it. it this got uh, passed around quite a bit. On, I mean, Kotke linked to it. A lot of people, The Verge mm -hmm. did a thing. Like, this one has made the rounds. It entered, I think, burbled up into mainstream internet culture this week. The release it did, of yeah. Um, one of our contributors, Eric Smith, works for Quirk and told me that they were really thrilled with how much attention that trailer had gotten. And I just think it's a fun idea. You know, if William Shakespeare wrote Star Wars, what's not fun about that thought experiment? That's pretty good. So that's available this week, too. Those are new books. Tell me about some paperbacks. Quick hits in paperback, Shine, Shine, Shine by Lydia Netzer uh, is about a woman whose husband is an astronaut. He's off in space. He's taking robots to Mars when uh, she is left at home with their son who's autistic. She's pregnant with their second one. She has a car crash. Their world changes and their marriage uh, also gets kind of thrown into sharp relief by this you know, change in their situation. It's, uh, the writing is really quirky. That's also a debut novel. Um, Netzer's voice is really unique. I, I loved it. It's weird and interesting. And there are robots and people who explain their love to each other with formulas written on the refrigerator door, and it's just great. Um, and then Laura Lamont's Life in Pictures by Emma Straub is also fresh out in paperback this week. And it's about a Wisconsin girl named Elsa Emerson who escapes from a family tragedy, moves to Hollywood, uh, changes her name to Laura Lamont, and becomes a studio star in the 1920s. Um, perfect to read by the pool and think about yourself being draped in like glitter and diamonds. Nice. I'm changing the schedule on us on the fly. Oh. We're running, we, we did a lot of bad job old dudes and getting pissed off earlier. So we, gotta, <laughs> we got carried away with bad job So we're going to sponsor next, our, our second sponsor. Okay. Which is audible.com. Thank you, Audible. Audible.com, 100,000 audiobook titles to choose from in every genre. Thrillers, 
comedy, sci-fi, you want to laugh, you want to cry, you want to battle aliens, you got your choice. Audible titles play on your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android device, more than 500 devices. You download it, you can listen to it wherever you want to, whenever you want to. We got a deal for you. 30-day free trial, you go to audibletrial.com backslash bookriot, and you can get a credit for a free audiobook download, and you can try it out, see if you like it. If you haven't ever tried an audiobook before, this is a really good way to get your feet wet and see if it's for you. Um, this offer, you can't get it on audible.com. Don't go there. You got to go to audibletrial.com slash bookriot to get the deal. And it's so, a forward slash. It's a forward slash. Did I say backslash? Mm-hmm. I always, I, I'm never going to get that right. It's just hardwired now. <laughs> so we got some picks for audiobooks. I'll go first. Um, okay. I listened to this a while ago, nonfiction, which is something I've found that I like on audiobook. Um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman. Um, he did a lot of research about cognitive bias, basically. Um, that there are multiple ways that we think about things and we get ourselves into trouble when we use the wrong kind of thinking to think about certain kinds of problems when we should be using the other kinds of thinking. It's really into d- different selection bias and confirmation bias and chunking and a lot of different other ways. Oh, if any of these sound interesting, I'm not going to go yeah. into them because I'm going to butcher them right now. Can you hear my bells ringing? Yeah, all my bells this are is, ringing. This has Shinsky written all over it. Um, really interesting stuff. It's the kind of thing that Malcolm Gladwell would crib for an essay in The New Yorker, but it's the real thing. Um, it's not quite an academic study that he would publish in a journal, but it's a lifetime of work um, that Kahneman um, did on thinking and biases and thinking systems that we use um, in our daily lives. I find it very helpful, even in my own life, just thinking about how I think and paying attention to what kind of rubrics I'm using to make decisions and whether or not those are appropriate rubrics or not. Um, you want to get you want to you want to get a small taste? I got a good experiment. You're going to like. Oh yes. Okay. So I'm going to describe someone. And I want you to give them, I want you to guess what their occupation might be. Just a general person. <laughs> I'm so scared right okay, now. Okay, yeah. So this person, uh, quiet, introverted. Um, they work alone. Okay. Tends not to work well with other people. Um, they spend long amounts of time on simple, repetitive tasks. And um, yeah. So what, what, what would you guess that kind of person would, that's their personality. What kind of personality type, mm. what, what profession would draw that kind of personality type? Well, I so was thinking maybe I, it was, oh, are you going to tell? I was going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two things. I'm going to give you what most people guess okay. and then the kind of person that is most represented according to Kahneman's research by that description. So that, those are, that's what you're going to get. So what's your guess there? Well, until you said repetitive tasks, I was thinking maybe this was Jonathan Franzen. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Maybe something with programming? Okay. Good guess. Um, most people guess librarian for that personality trait, mm. right? But Oh, but librarians have to work with other people other all the people, time. Other people, right. Um, but really, those are farmers. Ah. <sighs> So one thing that happens is that we use our cultural information to make to make to assign categories to things 
when we don't really have a sense of it. Like, do you have any sense of how many more farmers there are, for example, than librarians? Like, it's on order of magnitude, right? I, yeah, I have no idea, but I'm sure it's more. I think I, think I saw a statistic five or six years ago that 40% of Americans worked in agriculture. Like, that's For just real? a huge number, right? Well, a huge number. So our bias towards cultural representations of certain kinds of people overwhelm the statistical realities of the world we live in. I think this mm -hmm. stuff is really fascinating. So interesting. So that, that's a long pitch for Daniel Kamen thinking fast <laughs> and slow. The audiobook is read by Kahneman himself. Um, I've listened to it a couple times uh, in a couple different chunks. So that's really good. You give me a pick for an, an, an audiobook. I listened to World War Z on the way to the beach last week. Nice. And it it was good. It was actually, it was great. There's a full cast. Uh, so it's, if you don't know World War Z, it's an oral history of this zombie war that happened. And Max Brooks, who is the author, is also the narrator. And it's as if he's gone and interviewed a bunch of people, scientists and researchers and military people and just normal folks after the zombie war is over. And each chapter is one of them telling their story about their involvement in it. So there's a different cast member, a different reader for each section. So characters that are supposed to be from Asia have Asian accents and uh, characters mm. that are from the Midwest sound like they're from the Midwest, which was really, I thought was really great. And if you were reading it on the page, I guess you wouldn't hear that in your head. You would just know that the person was from wherever right. in the world. So it really brought these different people to life. It's a little quieter than I expected World War Z to be, but I think that's because I wasn't paying enough attention to what World War Z was about. I was just looking at Brad Pitt in World War Z movie trailers. Which apparently is nothing like the book. That's the right. what I've heard. Uh, but the book, I thought, or the audiobook was was great. It's like six hours long. It's an abridged version of the story. So for a road trip to the beach and back, it was perfect. Um, but having a shift in narrator every time around was great. And Carl Reiner narrated a section. Rob Reiner. There were a few. Oh, Alan Alda narrates hmm. a section. There were some great familiar Voices, not too many ladies, but some good voices, uh, and yeah, World War Z. I really enjoyed it. it. Seems like a natural fit for an audiobook, some a, a work of fiction that's in an oral history format. Mm -hmm. I it was. was a, I the, thought it was really perfect. For I was it. saying on the podcast last week with uh, Chuck Wendig, who was our guest, that I thought first person narration in fiction is especially good for audiobooks oh, yeah. as well. Um, makes a lot of sense. Okay, so that's oh, yeah, com slash book riot. You can check out the deal. I'd be really interested if someone wanted to listen to the audiobook of Tampa. Oh. And then tell me what that's like. <laughs> yeah, and um, make sure you have your therapist on uh, speed dial if you do that because <laughs> it's a rough one. Okay, let's do birthdays. All right. Two birthdays, big ones. There's always, you know what? There's enough famous authors that I can come up with two good names. It's for always week. big ones. Always yeah. big ones. Let's do the first one. Marcel Proust, born July 10th, 1871. So uh, Wednesday of next week, July 10th, will be his 100 and some odd birthday. Not going to do the math. Um, Proust, towards the end of his life, was sickly and writing from bed most days. Most days he didn't get out of bed. Um, and even fewer days did he leave his room. And he was spending so much time writing in, and in isolation that he w didn't want to be bothered by the city street sounds and sounds from the other people and buildings around him. So he lined his bedroom with cork. Hmm. And here's a better thing, that it has been preserved. Oh, for real? You can go see it in Paris. That's such a great nerdy thing. You can go see... Um, actually, I think it's been... I don't think it's actually in the same house, but it's in a museum where they 
took his furnishings and reconstructed his cork-lined bedroom, these tiles of cork that he put, put up on the walls. Um, or I actually imagine that Proust himself didn't do it. He probably had someone else do it because um, he wasn't the handiest fellow. I it's too think. bad there's not like a time travel episode of MacGyver where they yeah. make the cork walls right. together. So that's Marcel Proust uh, writing about his childhood in a cork-lined bedroom towards the end of his life. Uh, the other birthday, E.B. White. Oh, yay. Born July 11th, uh, 1889. Uh, excuse me, 1899. And he, most of us know him from Charlotte's Web. Um, some of us also know him from Strunk and White, The Elements of Style. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really got his start in letters writing for The New Yorker. Long-time writing, writer from The New Yorker. And in fact, if you're interested in that part of E.B. White's um, writing and don't know his New Yorker writing that well, there's a collection of his writing about New York um, called This is New York, I think. If that's wrong, I'll correct it later. Um, that's really great. And he, oh, excuse me, here is New York. I just remembered, that's the, not This is New York. Here is New York. Um, two factoids. One, just in case you're wondering, all of us know him as E.B. White, but you probably don't know what that stands for. It stands for Elwyn Brooks White. E-L-W-Y-N, Elwyn Brooks White. My second bit of trivia for you is, even for a writer, um, White did not like meeting new people. And as during his time at the New Yorker, it was the time of James Thurber and, you know, really the New Yorker being at the center of uh, New York and American literary culture. So there's all kinds of notable names and people coming to visit the New York offices and E.B. White had a staff room there. And he was so reticent to meet new people that he would sneak out the fire escape out of his office window. I love this story. And sneak down to a nearby branch of what then was a famous chain of candy stores called Schraff's. And he would go down there and wait for the people to leave. Uh, And then he would go back up and climb back into his office. So that is my factoid about E.B. White, who sounds like a kindred spirit. Yeah. In a lot of ways. <laughs> that's, I mean, and it's not just like crossing the street to avoid someone. No, At least he had the candy shop to hang out right. in, he man. He climbed out the fire escape. So that is some proactive <laughs> uh, introversion and uh, misanthropy. So if I, I guess if I had to go to an office and deal with people every day, I would probably consider doing that too. Yeah, I guess so. So anyway, happy birthday to Marcel Proust and E.B. White. Um, let's do, we got some literary movie news. We do. Quick movie quick, news. A couple of quick hitters. Steven Spielberg is trying to acquire the rights to do a Grapes of Wrath remake. There was a, um, a film adaptation of it in, the, in 1940, which I haven't seen, but you have, right? It's so Jeff? good. Uh, and Spielberg wants to do it. I don't know if I have any feelings about this, but I think it's interesting. I kind of trust Steven Spielberg to take on a big thing. <sighs> Well, are we worried? Should we be worried? At least it's yeah, not Baz Luhrmann. Mm, like, there's not going to be Baz Luhrmann grapes of wrath get, with I, glitter. I don't get worried about these types of things. <laughs> you know, like the grapes of wrath is going to survive whatever atrocity anyone could visit upon it in a film. I'd say this: um, the 1940 version, um, directed by John Ford and starring James Dean, hmm. is awesome. Um, it's uh, 
It's just so good. Um, I'm sorry. I said James Dean. I meant Henry Fonda as Tom Jones. Ah. Excuse me. Um, it, it's just so good and beautiful, and it's beautifully shot in black and white. Um, it's kind of like, I think it's up there with, like, To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, just, mm. I don't know why you'd want to remake it. it. It doesn't feel that dated to me. Um bring new audience I, I guess so yeah James book. Dean starred in East of Eden another Steinbeck adaptation yeah. so I'm kicking myself for that mistake anyway so that's I don't know like it, it feels like that is a totemic representation so that that's fine whatever like I don't know I'm not clamoring for one because there is a good version the other thing mm-hmm. is like Spielberg might there, there's a strong social critique underpinning to Grapes of Wrath right oh that's right and that's not something that Spielberg tends to do very well. Um, that's true. Even with something like Lincoln, you know, it's 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 more about the people, like the characters mm-hmm. and their particular stories and struggle. And what is Steven Spielberg going to do with all the turtle crossing the road chapter? Yeah, and then like these these second person or excuse me, third person sing uh, plural first person we crossed you know the story Mm -hmm. of the oklahoma that's going to be very difficult and there's some jesus and christian stuff layered in allegorically onto it i I feel like he might make a very beautiful moving character driven film but that layer of social critique about capitalism and workers and labor that steinbeck really is quite heavy-handed with frankly Mm -hmm. Um, heavy-handed that that's the wrong characterization dedicated to committed to interested in i feel like that's something spielberg as a filmmaker is not great at dealing with like broad political issues so uh, you know i'm sure it would be beautiful i'm sure there'd be some very nice cinema cinematography he'd get some great performances out of some actors um but i think he would defang it um because yeah. it, it still is pretty it still is pretty um I don't know. It still can hit you pretty hard reading Grapes of Wrath. Uh, I mean, especially since if Grapes of Wrath was being written today, it would be about itinerant workers from Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the story is a lot. The story is still out there, right? About underpaid, exploited agricultural workers. They're just not all white people coming from the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma these days. So, if I were asking Spielberg, I would say. Could you could you tell the Grapes of Wrath story without the same characters but the same heart and tell it from the point of view of um, seasonal migrant workers coming mm-hmm. from Mexico or something like that? Or if Spielberg is, and I think you're right, he's really good at those character-driven mm-hmm. portraits. If it's sort of a an inspired by the Grapes of yeah, Wrath that's situation, what I'm like inspired by the Grapes of Wrath, right? And with it's the told, with the characters, but without the political heart, no. then it then it becomes less problematic to the source material if he does defang it because inspired by is really different from adapted or. And I um, have to say, I mean, this is also a bit of a Jeff literary pet peeve, so bear with me. Like, I think it's all it's a little easy to write or direct or make a work of art that's set in the relatively distant past about politics because it doesn't feel applicable, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, like, you don't get any points for... The protesters aren't going to show about, up. The, right. Lincoln is not about racism that applies really to us today, right? Like, you don't get credit for making a social, no, uh, social movie 
by directing Lincoln. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't deal with the difficult problems about race we have right now, just as making the grace of wrath today as a movie that's very extremely faithful to the novel doesn't deal with the labor and itinerant farm worker issue that we still have today. So some of it feels like, you know, congratulating ourselves for social problems we no longer have and ignoring the ones we do have. Just like I kind of don't like allegorical, this is also pet peeve, people aren't going to like this, like dystopian fiction that tries to take on social problems in an allegorical way because it doesn't really grapple with the difficulty of the specific cultural problems we have. Because it's usually the specifics that get us into trouble. Mm-hmm. It's not like people should be treated equally. Like no one agrees, disagrees with that. It's the implementation of specific policy and situations that you get. Anyway, that's enough soapbox. But you see the point I'm going for there, maybe. I do. I do. But, I think it'll be interesting. But He's here still you're a better to... case study because you haven't seen the original. I haven't. I think I might have to watch it but, soon. But if a Spielberg made one, would you be interested in seeing it? If it came out, say, you know, sometime next summer and there's oh, a new one with yeah, Ryan same... Gosling as Tom Joad or something <laughs> like that? Ryan Gosling as Tom Joad. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, I, wow, I'm just going to need a minute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, I think I would be interested in seeing it for the same reason that I was interested in seeing the new Gatsby film um to know how that experiment turned out to be able to talk about it with people um i don't get real worried either um we've talked about that idea before also that the books are going to survive no matter like no one's going we're not going to lose the grapes of wrath from the canon because someone makes a bad film of it um so i i try not to get too worked up about about those things there is however this next piece of movie news is one that I have worked to, up. I, I could tell you emailed it earlier and you're worked up. yeah I'm a little cautious about it um Jeff Bridges has been trying forever to get a film made to make a film of The Giver by Lois Lowry mm-hmm. which I am personally very connected to because it like this is the very first book that I remember reading and feeling like it just exploded my brain um, and the way that I thought about the world and what I realized books could do. I was in sixth grade and it just, you know, rocked my world. Um, so Jeff Bridges is working on this. They have finally cast the guy who's going to play Jonas, who is the main character. He's an Australian unknown actor named Brenton Thwaites. Uh, and apparently it's going to go into production, uh, in, into shooting in South Africa this fall. So maybe by like fall of 2014, maybe early 2015, if things all go well, we will have a film of The Giver with Jeff Bridges as The Giver and uh, Brenton Thwaites as Jonas. Um, do you know this story at all? Have you read The Giver? Yes, I have. It's been a while, but I know this. And there was the sequel came out recently. Uh, yeah, I can't it's remember actually, the title of. There, there, it's actually like a trilogy of. Oh, right. But I, yes. I have not brought myself. I love The Giver so much that I've just decided I'm going to leave it as a thing by itself and not mm. read. Not read. I, and it, it, it ends with a lot of open questions, and I don't really want those questions to be answered. Um, so I'm not going to read the other ones. I think I will have to see this movie yeah. just to see how it could. There, there's a lot that I think will be difficult to translate to the screen. But if someone is able to do it, I really want to see what that looks like. Well, that's good. I mean, I guess taking both of these bits of movie news together, I get neither of us like are going to shake our fists at the world and say, no, don't do this. I guess it's more of a question of gauging our interest or excitement in a particular. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not excited about a Spielberg. Great yeah. Spielberg. I'm, I'm just excited. Not. Like if he wants to make it, like I've got no problem with it. I'd be excited 
in something else around it a little yeah. bit more. I think a gi- the Giver film could be visually really interesting in a similar way to like how Pleasantville was interesting uh-huh. because um, in, it's that same idea that like no one in his world sees color and then he goes to the Giver who gives him memories and information and ideas that no one else in his society has right. because they're not, it's judged that they can't handle all of those things. So all of a sudden the apple turns red. All of a sudden he knows what cold feels like. He has a memory of snow. Like if they could translate that, it could be really beautiful. And I would love to see that happen. Um, if they translate it and it's a flop, like I'll be a little bit sad. Um, I'll probably well, let me just... ask you this question then. You'd be excited for a good version of the giver, whatever yes. that good means, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Gotcha. I, because I am the arbiter of good, Jeff. No, no, that's that's that <laughs> stipulated, right? Yeah. Right. I think right. there are some people that don't even want there to be a good version of the books they like. Right. Oh, I think yeah, sure. Um, and those people you you, you can't talk to. No, you can't talk to them. We got to wrap up, man. We do. We, we were got, chatty. We, we're chatty. Yeah. We I we got on soapboxes, um, and stood on them for quite a while. I'm comfortable uh, on Yeah, I know. We're, we're just perched up here. Maybe we should stay on till next week. So I am Jeff O'Neill. You can follow me on Twitter at Reading Ape. You are? I am Rebecca Shinsky. You can follow me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. If you've got something to tell us about the podcast, you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Um, you can hit us up on Twitter, either one of us individually, or Book Riot itself, at Book Riot. We check that. We'll see it. You can leave a comment on the post, just like Brandon Scanlon did this time, and we're so thankful for that. Um, you can find show notes um, for this and other episodes of the show at bookriot.com slash category slash podcast. Uh, if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or rate the show. We would love you. We love you anyway. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, I'll love you extra. We will be grateful for something other than listening to the show. In addition to being grateful for that, we will be grateful for your time and attention and leaving a review. That'd be great. Um, Check us out next week. And I guess that's it. Is that it? I think that's it. All right. Have a good fourth, Rebecca. Thank you, you too, Jeff. And all you two out there. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.